You're listening to Comedy Central. December 17, 2018. From Comedy Central's World News Headquarters in New York, this is The Daily Show with Trevor Noah, Ears Edition. Trevor Noah, so good to have you all here. My guest tonight, my guest tonight is an author, uh, a really fantastic author. Her name is Eve Ewing. You're gonna love her. She has, she has a new book out which discusses the impact of race on public schools. A fascinating discussion. We'll be talking about that later. But first, let's catch up on today's headlines. High-end fashion has always been about making a statement. And now, thanks to Prada, that statement can be, uh-oh. Prada is under fire after the high-end fashion house displayed and sold items that some called racially insensitive. Prada calls them Pradamalia, a, quote, new family of mysterious creatures. But tonight, there is backlash over a monkey-like character with big red lips that some are calling racist. This store in New York City's Soho neighborhood removed the characters from the window and lowered the blinds. In a statement, the company writes in part, it abhors racist imagery. Pratamalia are fantasy charms, not intended to have any reference to the real world and certainly not blackface. I know the devil wears Prada, but I didn't realize he was also their head of marketing. <laughs> like, this is how you know there's no black people working at Prada. <laughs> because you realize, if you just had one black person in management, they would have been like, ah, uh, guys, 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 guys. And this is a weird one, because those things are obviously racist, but at the same time, they're tiny and adorable. <laughs> it's like Jeff Sessions all over again. <laughs> Moving on. Russia has just found something new to meddle in. In Russia, a rap battle is brewing. In one corner, the president of Russia, Vladimir Putin, and in the other, the nation's hip-hop artists. <laughs> The Russian president is weighing in on official efforts to crack down on rap music. He said Saturday it is an important part of pop culture, but he also said it needed to be guided by the state. Okay, no, 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 no. Nyet, 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 nyet. <laughs> no government should be in charge of rap, especially not a government run by Vladimir Putin. You're gonna have the first person to lose a rap battle by poisoning. What are you doing? And you guys might think I'm judging Putin prematurely, but I don't think he should be in charge of running rap, because there's actual footage of Putin at a rap concert, and I'm not sure that he is a fan. He's like, I don't wave my hands in the air <laughs> because I do care. <laughs> he looks like the worst undercover cop ever. It's like, it's like the Russian version of 21 Jump Street. He's like, what's up, my fellow rap-loving teenagers? It's like, are you Vladimir Putin? I wish, that guy's super cool, right? <laughs> oh, and speaking of rap, Cardi B and Offset have had a complicated relationship. They had a child, 
right? He cheated on her. Uh, she dumped him. Uh, it's actually pretty simple now that I say it out loud. Uh, <laughs> but this weekend, Offset tried to make things right by doing things very wrong. Bronx rapper Cardi B's estranged husband interrupted her performance last night to beg her to take him back. Rapper Offset came on stage at a festival in Los Angeles with a bouquet of flowers and a cake that read, Take me back, Cardi. The two were married last year, but split amid rumors he was cheating on her. She didn't seem amused by the stunt. Okay, first of all, black musicians really need to work on their concert security. <laughs> I went to a Paul Simon concert and I couldn't get a water bottle in. Meanwhile, Offset is walking in giant cakes right onto the stage. Like, I'm just saying, whether or not they get back together, Cardi needs a guy watching the loading dock. You need no security, new security. And as much as I get what Offset was trying to do, I don't think he should have put Cardi on the spot like that, right? Especially at her job. Like, some people think it's romantic because he made a big gesture, and I guess it's a rap concert, they think it's loose, but this is Cardi's job, all right? If she had any other job, this would not be acceptable. If she was an opera singer, and Offset came in the middle of a performance, <laughs> and she was up there, and she's like, I make money moves! <laughs> and he just, like, jumped in, and was like, hey, Cardi, people would be like, hey, what are you doing? <laughs> If she was a firefighter and she's like in the man, he's there like, ha, 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 Cardi, take me back, ha, 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 ha. <laughs> if she was an air traffic controller and she was like, yes, what you need to do is approach the Cardi, can you, uh, not now, Cardi, Cardi, can you, not now, Cardi, and the people in the plane are just like, we're going down, take him back. <laughs> this is not a conversation that you need to have in public. It's also not a conversation we want to hear in public. Cause Cardi's like, baby, I'm sorry, but we are not a and Offset is just probably running off. He's like, baby, baby, I'm sorry, I cheated, I cheated, woo! Cheated, I cheated, woo! Cheated, I cheated. All right, let's move on to our main story. <laughs> it is no secret that the Trump administration has, like, a lot going on right now. <laughs> First of all, everything Trump has ever been involved in is being investigated. His company, his charity, his presidential campaign, his inauguration, his presidency, it's like he has the Midas touch, but instead of gold, everything he touches turns to crimes. <laughs> but while that's going on, there are also big changes happening in Trump's White House. For the past week, the president has been searching for someone to replace his chief of staff, John Kelly, a man who's endured so much stress, it's easy to forget that he's only 26 years old. <laughs> Look at that, hmm? And, and Trump has been getting rejected over and over over this job, right? Nick Ayers said no. Chris Christie said no. Ben Carson started to say no, and he should be finished saying no by Christmas. It takes a very long time for him to say things. But finally, over the weekend, Trump found somebody willing to take the worst job in the country. President Trump has named Mick Mulvaney, the current director of management and budget, as his acting chief of staff. Trump grew deeply frustrated at the rejections in the media narrative that no one of high stature wanted to be his chief of staff. So he decided suddenly on Friday afternoon to tap Mulvaney. He met Friday with Trump for a scheduled discussion of the budget showdown, officials said, but he left as the acting chief of staff. Okay, that is incredible. <laughs> Mick Mulvaney, the budget director and midlife crisis Harry Potter, <laughs> came into the Oval Office, right, for a meeting about the budget. And then Trump just ambushed him with another job offer. He's like, so, about this budget, chief of staff says what? What, sir? He said it, folks. <laughs> Legally binding, no backsies. Like, it makes it sound like the job search frustrated Trump so much, he just decided he'd hire whoever came through the door next. And I'm just saying, we should be grateful that Mick Mulvaney got the job and not the White House Roomba. 
could have just been like, the next one that could, congratulations to the new chief of staff, high energy, always on the move. <laughs> and just like Eric spends his days eating garbage off the floor, folks. <laughs> and the reason, now, the reason filling that position was so hard is that it's almost impossible to find someone who likes President Trump. And it turns out the new guy doesn't either. In a matter of days, he'll be Donald Trump's right-hand man. But in the days before the president was elected, it appeared Mick Mulvaney could barely stand him. Yes, I'm supporting Donald Trump. I'm doing so as enthusiastically as I can, given the fact that I think he's a terrible human being. <laughs> That is a big jump. <laughs> From calling someone a terrible human being to becoming their right-hand man. That's, like, that's the kind of change of heart you only see in romantic comedies, you know? <laughs> it's always like, I'm the captain of the sports team and she's a dumb nerd, and then 80 minutes later, it's like, wow, once I got to know her, she had a vagina. <laughs> and to be honest, finding this out, actually, it made me feel better about Mulvaney because I don't think we want anyone working in the White House who doesn't think Trump is a terrible human being, right? I know that seems weird, but at least we know that Mulvaney's normal. <laughs> yeah, when Trump goes for that nuclear football, you're gonna want someone reasonable within tackling distance. That's all I'm saying. <laughs> and maybe, like, maybe giving Mulvaney this job was Trump's form of revenge or, or was something else. Either way, it's good that the president was able to fill that role because it turns out he already has another position he needs to fill. Breaking news out of the White House this morning. Ryan Zinke is out as Secretary of the Interior. Ryan Zinke is stepping down after two years at the agency and 17 separate investigations into his conduct. White House officials had been pushing Zinke to resign for weeks, concerned about the number of investigations the Democrat-majority House could bring against Zinke. You know, Donald Trump's White House is like the club after midnight. For every guy that comes in, someone else has to leave. <laughs> Actually, when you think about it, Trump's White House is exactly like the club, right? You always wonder when the cops are gonna shut it down. It's full of weirdo Russians. There's never enough women. And when the lights come on, everyone wonders why they didn't leave sooner. And they're like, why do we stay so long? And also, like, considering how many investigations Trump is facing, it's weird that he's firing Zinke for being under investigation, you know? It's a bit hypocritical. He's like, you got too much heat on you, man. You just, there's too many people come. Hold on, I'm getting a subpoena, hold on. My <laughs> reputation is just too, pre hold on, another subpoena, hold on. Too precious, and what I'm talking about is respect. Oh, the feds are here, cover me while I shoot my way out of here. <laughs> but no matter how many people join the White House, and no matter how many people leave the White House, Donald Trump can rest easy knowing he's got one guy who's his ride or die, Stephen Miller. This guy over here, he's the architect of Trump's cruelest immigration policies. The Muslim ban, deporting dreamers, throwing kids in cages, that was all him, yeah. If Trump is Scarface, say hello to his little friend. <laughs> and this weekend, Miller was back on TV talking about how America has to pay for the wall. Emphasis on to pay. We're gonna do whatever is necessary to build the border wall to stop this ongoing crisis of illegal immigration. And that means this is, a, this is a very, if it comes to it, Absolutely. Uh, did you, uh, did, did you catch that? Did you catch Did you guys, did you guys catch that? No, not the stuff, not the stuff about the southern border. No, I'm talking about the, the new, the new border up here. <laughs> what's, what's going on over there, huh? Bit of a migration happening <laughs> the other way. 
Yeah. All weekend, all weekend, people were wondering what the hell happened with Stephen Miller's hair. And I get why. It's like someone said, who here hates immigrants? And his hair was like, this guy. <laughs> this guy, have a hair. <laughs> Although, I, I don't think we should be going after Miller, right? I think we should be going after his barber, Sherwin-Williams. <laughs> That's who we should be going after. We should really be going after them. Like, seriously, it barely even looks like hair. What is that? <laughs> Who let him leave the house like that? Why? <laughs> it looks like he got head-butted by Steven Seagal and it's stuck. <laughs> I mean, I, I guess I support Stephen Miller on this because I'm just happy when he does anything to cover up his face. I wish he, you know, he just carry on, just go further with that. Let's see how far. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's a, that's a good-looking guy. I like that. You know what's crazy about this whole situation? is that Trump hates it when his people look bad on TV, right? He hates it when people look weird, when they look stupid, when they get mocked, which means this might be the only thing that could get Patch Adams over here fired. <laughs> yeah, tomorrow the president's gonna call him in like, I'm sorry, Stephen, there's no place in this White House for someone with dumb hair. Roomba, escort him out! <laughs> we'll be right back. Welcome back to The Daily Show. It's the holiday season. You know, the time when you get to hang out with your friends and drink coffee. And there are a lot of people, <laughs> there are a lot of people out there dreaming about a white Christmas. But what about a black Christmas? Well, for more on this, we turn to Roy Wood Jr. and another episode of CP Time. <laughs> Welcome to CP Time, the only show that's for the culture. Today, we discuss black people and the joyful festive holiday of Christmas. So let's start with slavery. Because remember, black people weren't celebrating Christmas before that. None of us were on the boat ride over here going fa-la-la-la-la, deck the halls. But once they were in America, many slaves began to see Christmas for the blessing that it was. A chance to escape while their owners were away for the holidays. <laughs> the great abolitionist Harriet Tubman even used Christmas to free her three brothers. Which may sound good to you, but if I let my sister free me around Christmas, I'd never hear the end of it. <laughs> Every year, she'd be like, oh, thank you so much for the slippers. This almost as good as the gift I got you last year. Not shackles. And then I'd be like, shut up, Bernice. You ruined the holidays. <laughs> of course, Music is an important part of Christmas, and black people have been covering and improving the classics for years. Like Let It Snow by Boys to Men. <laughs> or Do You Hear What I Hear by me. Here's a sample. Do you hear what I hear? Sounds like oppression. <laughs> but some holiday music is tainted with a history of racism, like the classic Jingle Bells, which at first, just seems like an innocent song about reckless driving. But back in 1857, its first public performance was part of a minstrel show sung by a bunch of white dudes in blackface. It's a terrible legacy. And that's why every time I see a one-horse open sleigh, I key that shit for justice. <laughs> but it is also important to recall the true reason we celebrate Christmas. Santa. The breakthrough for black Santas was in 1943, 
when one of Harlem's biggest department stores hired the country's first black Santa Claus, which surely was a distraction for customers who didn't know what was going on. I'm sure they was all like, who's that nigga in the red jacket talking to my child? <laughs> After that, black Santas took a 70-year ill until two years ago when Larry Jefferson became the first black Santa at the white-ass Mall of America. <laughs> a victory for our people. Mostly because Larry used his employee discount to get all the black people he knew 20% off. <laughs> a hero indeed. But Kris Kringle would be nothing without the gifts he brings. The toys. Without the toys, Santa's just a fat bastard that broke in your house. And for decades, manufacturers didn't even consider making toys for black children. And when they finally did, some of them would just paint white dolls black. Like this Willie Talk doll. Look at that. Looks like Willie got thrown into a bonfire. <laughs> but the great thing about kids is they'll like whatever you give them because children are not very intelligent. <laughs> like my favorite toy when I was a youngster was Mr. Chompy Chomp. <laughs> oh, I'd play with Mr. Chompy Chomp for hours. I'd make him wobble, I'd make him talk to me, and lose all his teeth. It took me 45 years to realize this. Mr. Chompy Chomp was a staple. A good friend Cornell West told me that. That's all the time we have for today. I'm Roy Wood Jr. This has been CP Time. And remember, we're for the culture. Make sure you put my website up at the end so people can order my compact disc and cassettes. is a sociologist and author who teaches at the University of Chicago. She is the writer of Marvel's new comic book series, Ironheart. And her latest book is called Ghosts in the Schoolyard, Racism and School Closings on Chicago's South Side. Please welcome Eve Ewing. <laughs> The show. Thanks, thanks for having me. This is so cool to have you here. Shy Town, is that what you shouted? Yeah, that is. Oh, that is what nice. You okay, you roll with the posse. This is nice. It's a Chicago thing. It's a Chicago you know? thing. Yeah, yeah. They just shout this everywhere all you go. All the time, walking down the street, all the time. Okay, that could be uh, very cool and then very distracting <laughs> at also, other times. Yes. Um, let's get into a story that is painful and yet all too familiar and funny enough, not just unique to America, but the story speaks about. Uh, racism in schools that are being closed on Chicago's South Side. It seems like a problem that many politicians would claim is just a financial issue. You are a teacher, you are somebody who's worked in this institution. What is the problem itself? Well, the problem is that in America, we have two different standards uh, for what kinds of education we want to offer young people. And so if you have money or if you have access to private school or if you live in a, an affluent suburb, you get access to a certain type of education. And if you are poor and you're a person of color, especially if you're black, you get access to a different type of education. And right. so when policymakers are making decisions about kids in those types of schools, the kinds of schools that I write about that people call failing schools, terrible schools, um, there's a different set of standards. And when you look at those different set of standards, how do they affect the kids? Because when I was reading through the book, there were, there were instances and stories that really go 
back further in time than you would ever think the problem begins. You know, you'd think, okay, let's just talk about the school. But you argue that you can't just look at the school, you have to look at everything that led up to the school. Why? Well, uh, this is America where we know that our country is founded on a history of institutional racism and chattel slavery and Jim Crow and redlining and so on and so forth. And it may seem strange to bring those things up when you're talking about a set of school closures that happened in 2013. But basically the argument I'm trying to make in the book is that in order for us to understand the way schools operate now, we have to understand that history. And it's not that it's not that long ago. Right. Um, and so I wrote a book that's about 2013, but it begins in 1916 by talking about the Great Migration and how black people came to Chicago. Um, and I think that that's something that's not just about Chicago, that's about the country we live in. And that in most places, if you look at the history of how the city or the town got to be the way it is, uh, there's racism in the mix. Spoiler alert, just because <laughs> America. Let, let me ask you this. A lot of people shut down in America as soon as you bring up racism or race. You, as soon as you say that, people are like, oh no, I, the, here we are again with racism. To those who argue that this is less about racism and more just about money, they say, well, Eve, it's, it's, not, it's not about black or white, it's about rich or poor. How do you respond to that? Well, um, that's simply not true. Um, and that's the first thing I would say. Um, and that we actually know that uh, segregation breaks down across racial lines, both in housing and in schools. So black people, affluent black people in this country are more likely to live in low-income black neighborhoods than they are to live alongside white affluent people. Low-income white people are more likely to live alongside white affluent people. And because that's the way housing breaks down, that has huge implications for the kind of schools that we have. Right. Um, we also know that we don't actually save money through school closures. Um, and so the, the kind of budget argument doesn't really stand up. Um, but I think that it is uncomfortable for many people to talk about race and racism. And part of what I also wanted to do with the book is to help people understand that racism is a structural thing. It's not just about what's in your heart or how you right. feel or our interpersonal interactions. It's kind of the air we breathe. It's interesting because the, there's specifically a section in the book where you, where you break that down and you talk about how so many people feel like the label of racism is attached to them and they right. get defensive, they say, I'm not racist, I, I love these kids, I want them all to succeed. And you argue in the book, you're like, yes, you may not be racist, but the system itself is a racist system and that is something that is oppressing these kids. Would you argue that that is where it all begins? Because Chicago is often held up as, you know, America's child with issues as well. Look at Chicago. <laughs> That's one way to oh, put but it. look yeah. at what's happening in Chicago. Right. Look at Chicago's crime. Look at Chicago this. Would you argue that it starts at the schools or is the, or the schools a, a byproduct of what Chicago is? I think it's the latter. I think that uh, white supremacy and the history of racism in this country, I often say it's kind of like the virus. And these things are like the cold. They're like the sneeze. So these are the symptoms of a much larger issue. And so the book is about schools, but it's also not really about schools. It's really about the way racism and inequality shape the way we make policy decisions and how that affects kids. Right. And if somebody's out there going, well, Eve, you know what? Uh, racism is not my issue. Why should I care? Why should I care about a bunch of kids in an inner city who don't have the best school? Well, I don't spend a lot of time trying to convince that person. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I think that there's a percentage of people, I think this goes with a lot of issues we have in our country. There's a percentage of people that are reasonable, thoughtful, kind people who lack information. Right. And those people, I invite them and welcome them to learn from the book. If you're a person that doesn't fundamentally believe that it's important to provide a high-quality education to all kids in the United States and, and beyond, regardless of where they come from or who they are, I recommend another book to you and wish you the best <laughs> for a merry holiday season. If you are an asshole, do not read this book. <laughs> this book is not for assholes. Let, let me ask you this, though. Where do you think... My publicist is like, oh, gosh. She's... I think 
think that's a great she selling point. Goes on point. TV and says, "Don't buy my book." It's just like, don't, don't. If you're an asshole, do not buy the book. I Get think it that's from a great. The library, yeah. you know. The um, the, the the issues that America faces around its schooling are often, you know, I guess people often point to funding. But where do you think people can begin? Where do you think politicians can begin? And where do you think communities can begin in rehabilitating schools and getting them to the place where there's not the failing schools? I think the first thing is to understand public schools as public goods, and that these are all of our schools, regardless of whether you have a child enrolled there or not. Um, this is something that all of us support, and this is something that belongs to all of us, and so we have to take ownership over that. Right. And the second thing I think is we have a problem with hyper-individualism in our country, and so people like to focus on what's best for my kid, and you know, uh, the Obama administration had a policy called race to the top, right? We're going to have schools compete against each other, and then the best school is going to come out on top, right. and we're going to incentivize them to succeed, right? And you can't incentivize away poverty. You can't incentivize away struggle. And these are the things that kids are coming to school with. Um, and these are the things that these are the things that are that public educators face every day. And so I think that if we start seeing those as collective problems and stop focusing on you know the special kids that make it out and right, things like right, that, right. but ensuring that every kid has access to a high quality education, that's something we have the means to do. We just don't have a lot of interest or political will to do it. Well, I'm hoping the people who do have the interest on the political will read this book. Thank hey, you so much for being thanks, on the show. Thanks, I appreciate you. Ghosts in the Schoolyard and issue one of Ironheart are available now. Issue two of Ironheart will be available in January. Remember, if you're an asshole, do not read this book. <laughs> Eve Ewing, everybody. The Daily Show with Trevor Noah, Ears Edition. Watch The Daily Show weeknights at 11, 10 Central on Comedy Central and the Comedy Central app. Watch full episodes and videos at thedailyshow.com. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And subscribe to The Daily Show on YouTube for exclusive content and more. This has been a Comedy Central podcast.